Sawbones is a show about medical history, and nothing the hosts say should be taken as medical advice or opinion. It's for fun. Can't you just have fun for an hour and not try to diagnose your mystery boil? We think you've earned it. Just sit back, relax, and enjoy a moment of distraction from that weird growth. You're worth it. <laughs> Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. I'm your co-host, Justin Tyler McElroy. And I'm Sydney Smurl McElroy. Uh, so it's going to be like that, huh, Birmingham? Oh, man, I'm excited. It's going to be a good one. Um, it's fine. My feelings aren't hurt anymore. I'm very zen about it. Um, Were you zipping your fly when we came out? Just a little bit. No, actually, I was, if I can brag for a second, I was checking to make sure it was zipped, and it was. So, <laughs> again, I don't want to brag, but we've been doing shows with uh, Paul of Paul and Storm fame. Check him out at paulandstorm.gov. And <laughs> Paul Saboran uh, has been doing shows with us for a long time. And the very first show he ever did, he did that thing about um, the show began when the audience has been sufficiently horny for this one. But when Paul started doing shows with us, it was just my brother, my brother, and me. So now Paul does that before Sawbones, and it has taken on an uncomfortable vibe, <laughs> I would say. It makes me feel slightly uncomfortable. I don't usually think of our audience as being horny for... <laughs> for <laughs> Sorry, if you could say it one more time, I need a clean recording for this ringtone. I, mm, no, I, that was good. Just the ones. Just the ones. Just the one time. Uh, I don't have cake on me, right? No. So our, I get, Sydney was really, <laughs> a really T.O.'d at me. I was holding, I was holding our just about one-year-old. She'll be one-year-old next week. And I was holding her right before we came out. And Justin handed her a big chunk of cake. And she proceeded to just do what babies do, which is kind of wipe it on her face. <laughs> and then wipe it all over me. <laughs> and I was like, why, why? <laughs> In my defense. <laughs> there is none. There is none, actually, I don't have one. Hello, Alabama, what a pleasure it is to be here. <laughs> so whenever we go on the road and we do shows, live shows, we like to try to find topics that relate to the area that we're doing our show in. And what was really cool... Calm down. <laughs> we don't make you all come up with it. We do it ahead of time. What, what was really cool about, as I started researching, I was looking at Birmingham and at Alabama and, and looking for different like medical topics. I've, I, I'm used to, as I start my research, I'm going through a lot of like really kind of dense, like, stodgy medical articles about stuff that, like, doctors wrote, and they're uh, kind of boring sometimes. 
And what I started finding a lot of as I was looking into like historical references were what I have, and this is with, with the utmost affection, I, I call grandma blogs. <laughs> there were so many amazing like firsthand accounts, like this oral history of all these stories from the area that I, they really look like like maybe my grandma made them and <laughs> like but they're cool and they're they're like they know the people who told these stories and they knew this person and they're so anyway it was really inspiring it was really exciting to look into some of these what I started calling like the medical legends of Alabama <laughs> these are true though Leg no they're legends. true like they're true but they, but they just, they were told in this just really fun, like, personal way, which is a different, it's so different from all the boring articles. Y'all have had a lot of stuff here, medical-wise. <laughs> we couldn't narrow it down to just one. So, Medical Legends of Alabama. I came up with that name. Sydney originally wanted to title Alabama Medical Stories. And I said, Sid, it's good. It's so close. I love it. Let's build on that. <laughs> I am one of those boring doctors who usually right. writes I'm the, the grandma in our relationship. <laughs> you are the grandma of our relationship. Come on. <laughs> no, Come it's on. really true. We're all trying to have a good time here tonight, Sid. Come on. He has two cake carriers. Like, nice. <laughs> like, fancy ones. <laughs> That's untrue. I have three. <laughs> Besides, anything could be a cake hair if you believe in yourself. <laughs> uh, please, we're running out of minutes. Sydney, okay. Medical Legends of Alabama, so, cannot wait. The, as, I, <laughs> as I started looking into the, the history of medicine in Alabama, the, what I found is that there was this like theme of of these systems coming in like the like the first like comprehensive public health system was really created in this state and which is really cool but like what came with it was this resistance to any of it like a lot of people were like get out of here with your public health i don't know who you are and you're from the government and i don't trust you and and like this theme ran through a lot of the stories and this probably started with what one author called the Alabama Doctor War, which was a little, I would say a little melodramatic, <laughs> which is really the story of like the beginning of medicine as a discipline in the US, because in the mid 1800s, medicine here was just whatever. Anybody could call themselves here a doctor. Here in America, not Alabama. No, just any, yeah, in, in the US. Medicine was, anybody who, was a, who said like, I'm a doctor was a doctor. And especially in more rural places where you didn't have a lot of physicians or any at all, if you had usually a guy come through town with a briefcase full of medicine. Cocaine. <laughs> then, and they said they were a doctor. It's like, listen, we don't have anybody. This is good enough. So, you know, you had the, actually the cost of medicine was pretty low <laughs> because there was tons of competition because anybody could be a doctor. <laughs> so you had all of these like, the traditional doctors who actually went to some sort of schooling and, and apprenticed other physicians and learned some kind of science who were arguing for like a traditional kind of medicine. And then you had this whole other group that became known eventually as the eclectics, 
which were just kind of doing their own thing. And at the time, that made a lot of sense because if you looked at traditional medicine in the 1800s, your doctor would come and be like, well, I don't know. I know there are germs now because we're at that point <laughs> where I've learned that germs do things, but I also have no idea what to do about this. So I'm just gonna bleed you and then give you some mercury. And then cocaine. <laughs> cocaine was a big part of it. So, so was opium, was a big part of it. Uh, but then, but the- And it, opium <laughs> is part of it. <laughs> guys into David S. Pumpkins? He's here, he's here tonight. A lot of, a lot of David. Come on out, David. <laughs> we have Tom Hanks on our podcast. But we didn't. We just got David S. Pumpkins. <laughs> he won't answer to Tom. He's been really weird back say Actually, kind of an unnerving presence. It's almost like we tricked him into coming here and he doesn't know why he's here. Yeah. We don't have any of the money we promised him. So the, the eclectics came in and said, I know that these doctors went to school or whatever you want to call it, but, and we didn't, but also they're not helping you. And in some cases, what they're doing makes you really sick. So what we're doing, we think makes more sense because a lot of what they were drawing on were sort of like herbal traditional medicine. And if nothing else, some of the cures, even if they didn't work, maybe caused a lot less harm than some of the treatments that the traditional doctors were using. So there was this big battle at the time between these two kind of camps, which were really like everybody who went to whatever was considered medical school at the time and everybody who just said, I'm a doctor. <laughs> and there, this came to a forefront in Alabama between all of these different doctors fighting. And it was really, money was the big problem because the more people who join the eclectics and, and the eclectics the the wild thing about it is it wasn't enough to just practice medicine and do it in a kind of a different way they were they would teach you how to do it for yourself which was really putting doctors out of business and lowering the price of medicine because they would come and like deputize people yeah like here's it was almost like sort of like a multi-level marketing kind of thing like <laughs> Here's your kit of herbal medicines that you can buy from me, <laughs> and then you too can be a doctor. Uh, so, <laughs> the, and this was a problem all over the U.S., and in response to this, a lot of doctors started organizing, and this is when you see the AMA, the American Medical Association, first form, to try to start, like, standardizing, here's what a doctor is, here's what it means to be a doctor, here are the tests you have to pass, here's the, you know, you have to have this degree and this license and all that, and if you're not, you're not a doctor. And it was actually in Alabama, the Medical Association of the State of Alabama was, it was formed, like, right alongside the AMA. It was one of the very first states to really try to, like, formalize that and fight back and say, no, we need to have like doctors who are doctors <laughs> and not just anybody be a doctor. They started taking out the eclectics, right? It says. Well, I mean, they didn't. No, like, they started taking them out by any means necessary. No. <laughs> Rolling doctor hit squads. No. Taking out all fakes. No, not like that. Just like that person's They'll not a doctor. They'll never know that it was a crime because <laughs> they know eight places on the human body to poke to kill somebody instantly. <laughs> That's why I, I try not to get Sydney too mad at me. <laughs> the secret to a happy marriage is know that the other person could kill you and get away with it, no problem. <laughs> is that why you've been taking Taekwondo? <laughs> yeah, right, I can't have any defense. I'm a blue belt, Sydney. <laughs> Give me three years, maybe. 
Uh, a big part of this in this state was uh, Dr. Jerome Cochran, who was kind of like the father of public health, at least as far as Alabama is concerned, and probably should be as far as a lot of other states are concerned, because he was one of the first doctors to start promoting the idea that there are things doctors can do to improve the health of a community and prevent illness on the front end instead of waiting to treat it after somebody's already sick. And so he, he created this whole public health and sanitation system that was really revolutionary and would become the model for a lot of other states to follow. Was, was It started here. The problem he kept running into is that he had to organize all the doctors. So now like we've created this organization that standardizes doctors. So he's got like an army, so to speak, of, do of doctors. That, and that word means something. But he's got to get them to give him data. Like that's all, that's public health, right? You got to have data. You got to know like how many people are being born, how many people are dying, how many people have this disease, and what, you know, what are they doing about all these different, you need numbers. And so he started looking at all these doctors and saying like, can you just start, let's start easy. Give me your birth records. Like how many babies did you deliver? And death records, how many people died that you pronounced? And what he found was that the doctors said, no, <laughs> absolutely not, for a couple reasons. One, they were too busy. <laughs> I love that the big thing was like, I don't have t documentation is such a hassle, which is, I love to hear because it's the same thing doctors say now, like, I don't have time to write all that down. What's the, what's the biggest pet peeve? You ask doctors, like, what's the biggest thing that's causing burnout? It's the electronic medical record. It's always blamed on documentation. And it was the same thing then. Nobody wanted to write anything down. When did Jerry beef it? I don't know, Tuesday? <laughs> I don't know. Old Seinfeld was on. It's a play <laughs> that I go see. And they do Old Seinfeld the play. <laughs> Every Tuesday at 9 p.m. <laughs> it's called MWP, Must Watch Plays. There's like several plays they do every Tuesday. They do Black and White Frasier, <laughs> Old Seinfeld, <laughs> Caroline in the Village. <laughs> Caroline in the Village? It's That's like, a wild reference that you just pulled out. Sorry, I'm not, I'm just saying. Full Shack? Is that something? Full Shack, thank you very much. <laughs> Acquaintances. <laughs> That's something. So <laughs> Mork and Mindy, who was a witch. <laughs> she communes with aliens. The medicines, the medicines that We have just started rehearsing for the summer theater. That's right. Summer starts in March around these parts, and that means we don't have much time at all in the evenings to make dinner. But we will not be just consuming Wendy's, uh, although there will be some Wendy's consumed, but we are going to have a little extra help with Factor, which delivers ready-to-eat delicious meals right to your door, and not like junky stuff you get out of the freezer aisle, whatever. This is real high-quality, chef-crafted stuff that in two minutes you're ready to eat it. I'm talking about some Southwestern-style turkey and mac. I think this week I'm going to be enjoying a shredded chicken taco bowl is 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 part of my plan. 
Um, but they got like fancy stuff. Listen to this. Where are you going to get this? Truffle butter filet mignon. I mean, seriously? From 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 a, a box? Pre-prepared? All I got in two minutes? I mean, filet mignon? That sounds delicious. Yeah, it sounds delicious. And you can give these a try. And it's not just these meals. We're talking pancakes, smoothies. They got some great wellness shots that are surprisingly delicious. And the meals you just eat and eat. There's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup. Get as much as you need by choosing your meals every week. You're going to get exactly what you want. No surprises here. Uh, and the meals, I can say, are delicious. So what do you got to lose? Head on over to factormeals.com slash sawbones50 and use code sawbones50 to get 50% off. That's code sawbones50 at factormeals.com slash sawbones50 to get 50% off. Sydney, you know how you're always saying that you'd like to build a Justin McRoy fan site full of all your favorite quotes, clips, videos, and hunky pictures of beloved podcaster Justin McRoy? I don't remember. Well, there's that- no need to wait any longer, Sydney, because Squarespace is going to make it easier than you could possibly believe to make a website uh, all about your favorite hunky podcasting superstar. I don't think I was going Squarespace, to— Squarespace, what is it? It's a tool—think of it as— the palette, the palette of a web design artist. But you don't have to be a web design artist. You could just take stuff off the palette that is created by real people that know what they're really doing and put it from the palette onto the easel. The metaphor is broken down. Basically, you're going to be able to create great-looking websites that have fantastic customer support and help you unlock your creativity and do whatever you want to with your small business or podcaster obsession. You can sell products. You can uh, post your videos. You can share your stories about how Justin has shaped your life and is also a fantastic father. Folks, you got to stop waiting to make your Justin McElroy fan site. Go to squarespace.com slash sawbones for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch your Justin McElroy fan site, use offer code sawbones to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So clearly the doctors were very busy. And then the other thing is there was just a lot of distrust. The idea that, I mean, one, if you've got this guy coming in and he's like, listen, I'm with the government and I want to know how many of your patients died. Doctors were instantly like, why? What are you trying to say? Right. I'm not telling you that. Nobody. He had tons of, that was actually the first problem. He had tons of doctors who turned in like zero deaths. Nobody died. Crushed it. In this entire, (laughs) it'd be like for a whole county. Like, how many people died in the county? Nobody. Nobody. Burst a bajillion. (laughs) I win. Like, it's been five years. Nobody died. Nope, nobody died. I don't know. It's going great here. I'm really good. Don't come. Don't come here to to the town. Dr. Oduo rules. And when he tried to, like, lean on the community, when he tried to start saying, like, listen, if you don't report, like, you're going to get fined and you're going to get in trouble and, like, maybe you won't be able to serve this community anymore, the communities would actually protect their doctors and be like, well, forget it. We won't fund your public health system anymore then. <laughs> you can't have any of our money. We won't pay our taxes. Eat it. <laughs> and so, so, like, they really protected. So it, was, it, was, it took a long time. Of course, eventually, and... and like he, this system is really revolutionary for the time. The idea of like collecting these statistics and start implementing like better sanitation methods and public health started here in Alabama, and eventually it spread through the state and spread to other states, and it was a really effective program. Um, alongside that, carrying into our next story, 
was Dr. Judson D. Dowling, who was one of the health officers who would have been coming out into the communities like I'm a doctor and I'm sort of with the government and I want to ask you questions and intrude on your lives. And that was not popular at the time or any time. Like nobody likes that really. I do. I work, I work out of the home, so <laughs> a little company, you know, it doesn't hurt. So if Dr. Dowling came to your house and said, listen, we are working on ordinances to start pasteurizing milk because there's a bunch of germs in milk and if we heat it up then we kill them and then people don't get sick and die when they drink milk and so we would like to start doing that in your county how would you feel about that and also we're going to have to inspect periodically so not only are we going to start enforcing pasteurization but then we're going to come out and check your milk for like bacteria counts and stuff and make sure like you actually did it how would you feel about that? I'll say all my milk's already pasteurized. I buy it at Walmart. Well, I mean, it's 2019, so that's a... Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, this... <laughs> you didn't... Uh, listen. This listen. is 1921. If you're going to do a hypothetical, you've got to <laughs> set a scene for me, so, please. So it's 1921. Okay. Okay. Well, partner, <laughs> nope, I don't nope. know much about nope. pasteurization. Do you know about Jesus and stuff? That's me in 1921. Mm. So the, the people that Dr. Dowling started visiting were not fans of this either. They thought this sounded very intrusive. They didn't like the idea of inspections. And they didn't know why we needed to heat up milk. That seemed weird. So in response, he was kidnapped. <laughs> <laughs> Alabama. So in the middle of the night, masked vigilantes came and kidnapped him from his home and roughed him up a little bit and then told him, you have 30 days, leave town. Can I say? <laughs> reasonable. For people that just kidnapped you and beat the stuffings out of you, it's like very reasonable. Like, oh, we don't want you. I mean, make sure you have another place lined up. And... <laughs> It's not a big deal. Now, this, this actually helped turn the tide, of the, the opinion of the community, because this was not the response people wanted. Like, they were suspicious. They didn't like the idea of this, but they didn't want to beat the guy up. And so in response to this, people found it so outrageous that this poor doctor would get beaten up for just wanting to pasteurize their milk. There were actually laws passed that made it illegal to wear masks in public or in parades. <laughs> Which I found very specific. Hey, you are you all okay? <laughs> are you all doing all right? <laughs> the parades thing is great, because it's like... That guy's dressed as Little Caesar. <laughs> I think he's about to go steal someone so they don't heat up milk. That part of the laws were also that you couldn't lure someone out of their house under false pretenses. <laughs> I really appreciated that too. Like, hey, free pizza. That or free pizza pizza. <laughs> anyway, because of all this, by 1923, they were pasteurizing 80% of the milk and the rates of typhoid were way down. So it worked. <laughs> so it was great, it was great. 
Uh, one of my favorite stories that I kept, I kept stumbling over was about Davy Crockett. Uh, apparently, in Davy Crockett's many travels throughout the South, he spent some time in Alabama. He came on like a prospecting trip, and while he was here, he got really sick. He got some kind of fever, and like if you look into like medical records of the time, like what 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 did he get? It's always like mountain fever or swamp fever or I don't know evening fever, <laughs> morning fever. It's always it's just a fever, and it whatever what he was near, he was like, "There's a tree. It's a tree fever." <laughs> so he got a fever, and he was very sick, like near death. And so he ends up in this valley that's owned by this, this family, the Jones family. And he writes, and that we know that this happened. This isn't, this isn't fake. We know this happened because he wrote about it in his own words. He, the, the wife of Mr. Jones, who owned the property, uh, had a bottle of what were called Bateman's Drops. And she thought, if they killed me, he was only going to die anyway. So we may as well try these. Like, basically, you're about to die. I'm going to give you this medicine. It might kill you, but you're going to die. So Bateman's drops. So she gave him the whole... That's a, was that their slogan? <laughs> anyway, these might kill you. They may not. Anyway, Bateman's drops. So she gave him the entire bottle. Bad. He said, and this is from him, which throwed me into a sweat that continued on me all night when at last I seemed to wake up and spoke and asked her for a drink of water. So he credited these Bateman's drops with saving his life. He spent all night sweating, and then he was fine. Um, so I looked into, what were these Bateman's drops? Bateman's drops were one of the most popular patent medicines of the time. And patent medicines were basically like fake medicine. They usually, they usually had something like opium or alcohol or something like that in them that made you feel really good and they were really well marketed and branded but they generally didn't actually treat or cure anything. Um, Bateman's Drops was one of the most popular and it was probably because it largely just contained alcohol and opium and that was it. So that's what she gave him a bottle of. And it, I mean, and it worked. I mean, he got better. It's, it's one of those, right? Whoa, like, he was Dr. Smurl-McRoy, no, don't you think we should talk about this a little bit? I mean, nah, you've been pretty better. hard on the opium and alcohol mixed together in bottles over the years, but it seems to have really done the trick for old... It was one of the wild frontier, David Crockett. (laughs) And there was never a Dr. Bateman that these were named for. It was just marketed that it was Bateman's drops. He was Bateman. We don't know. It just sounds official. And uh, they really, they were one of the eight most popular patent medicines of like that century. I mean, really, when they looked through that time period, everybody was saying Bateman's drops, which you could understand um, because they were alcohol and opium. So they made David Crockett feel good. Um, This is going to seem like a bummer to mention, but I wanted to to briefly mention the great cholera epidemic of 1873. (laughs) And uh, I'm going to be doing some good jokes about the great cholera epidemic of 1873. Sensitive, tasteful jokes about a cholera epidemic that was apparently great. So what happened, people, we knew about, so cholera is an illness that gives you terrible diarrhea is the main thing you need to know. And it's serious because if you, 
it's serious. I thought that was my moment, but no, no, no. no. Well, keep going. It's, it's it's serious if you can't rehydrate somebody. Now, in especially in like the developed world, we can give you IV fluids and and get you through cholera. When before we could do that, and especially when we didn't know what was going on people could die and did from cholera quite often. So cholera was a big deal, it was a big bad deal. And so when it landed in Birmingham in June of 1873, people were really freaked out. It probably came, like they've traced it back. I think it's so, I think it's so fascinating they could, that we have this record. They traced it back to this guy who's only known now as Mr. Y. Okay. Like the letter, not like the question, like Mr. Y. Why <laughs> cholera? Who, lived in Huntsville and then came to Birmingham. So it's Huntsville's fault. <laughs> it, it actually, he moved and the cholera didn't come with him initially. It was when his stuff came. Mm. Like all of his stuff got and delivered a few weeks later. <laughs> he brought his jar of cholera. Why did you save it, Mr. Y? So he got sick and after he unfortunately succumbed to cholera, they didn't properly dispose of all of his stuff and that's, that's kind of how this thing spread. So, like, the people who were exposed to, like, bedding and stuff, they got sick. I'll take his toilet. Okay, well, <laughs> probably shouldn't do that. Those people didn't realize that they had cholera, so nobody properly disposed of that stuff. So it kept spreading from there. And uh, at first, like I said, none of the doctors really knew. Like, we knew about cholera. They knew about, epi like, the, the cholera could pass and epidemics and, like, that there were certain ways to dispose of clothes and belongings and stuff, but they just it took them a while to figure out that it was cholera. So once they once they started to figure it out, their initial reaction was to burn pots of tar on the corners of the city. That's not effective against cholera. <laughs> kind of a takeaway for you all tonight. <laughs> but it was it was commonly thought to be effective at the time because they thought it had something to do with bad air. So it's like they just burn some things and. Burn some tar air. to make some nice good air. Uh, <laughs> that one is, it doesn't even hold water logically. <laughs> What's, what I liked about the story is that a lot of the doctors in the city stayed. Like, people vanished from the city during this epidemic. Like, just scores of people just took off. We're like, forget it. And, and this happened, I mean, when you read about cholera epidemics all throughout the United States, not just in Birmingham, the cities would just empty out. But the doctors all stayed, and, and the doctors all stayed to take care of people, a lot of them anyway. Other people who stayed were one, a local madam named Louise Wooster. It was a very, a very famous local madam who wrote an autobiography that parts of it might not be true is my understanding, but if they are, lived a very amazing life. But there's a lot of folklore, but she stayed to help take care of all these cholera patients, and a lot of her employees stayed and also helped take care of cholera patients. So they were credited with like really caring for the sick and nursing a lot of people back to health. Alongside them was the city alderman, Francis P. O'Brien, who I mentioned him because he stayed and took care of sick people, got cholera, got so sick that they ordered him his own casket and printed his obituary in the paper, but he didn't die. <laughs> what a cool thing to have. Can you imagine? Is, anyway, this is my obituary. And I'm still here. <laughs> so how much did you want for that used car? Did I mention I have my own obituary? <laughs> 
So that's that's They're why like I bring up a cholera a epidemic. Okay. I just think that's amazing. That all these people stay and they took care of people. And the last, this is the last brief story that I want to mention. And this is not our usual sawbone story. Usually we kind of talk about like the weird or the wrong or the, the wild stuff that we've done in medicine. This is one of those like positive stories, um, amazing but positive that I like to share, especially in lieu of the fact that it is Black History Month. Uh, this is a story I had never heard. It's about the first female physician who practiced in the state who was also a black female physician who practiced in the state. And this was in, in the 18, this was in 1890. So this was at a time where the idea of, of women being doctors was still, you know, on the fringes. And so the fact that she was a black woman doctor was a, a huge deal at the time. Um, she had already gone through medical school, and there was an advertisement uh, in for uh, they needed a doctor. Um, it was actually at uh, Booker T. Washington had put out an advertisement that they needed a doctor to come and uh, take care of um, some of the students at the local school. They needed a doctor on staff to come take care of some of the students. And so he put out this advertisement and she decided that she would come and interview for the job and he was a big fan and he thought she would be great for the position and so he wanted to hire her but before she could do that she had to pass the licensing exam for the state of Alabama to be a physician here. The licensing exam and this, like, to think about this now as a physician, to have to take this exam, it, like, it makes me so anxious. The licensing exam was a 10-day oral examination. And each day you had to go in and sit face-to-face -face with a leading expert in that, whatever that day's test was on, in that field, and answer questions for however long they decided they needed to ask you questions. And so you can imagine she had to sit for this 10-day exam with, I mean, they were all white men, and answer their questions for 10 days, which is just, and she passed the exam. They could find no fault. So she passed the exam, and she went on to be a physician, and I just think, I think that's an amazing story, and it's one that, that we're not, we're not often told. I haven't even named her. Haley Tanner Dillon Johnson was her name. I realize I just haven't said her name. And Dr. Johnson passed this exam, and it's just, I don't know, 10-day oral exam, face-to-face -face with leading experts in the field? I, I would have cried after day three. I don't think I could have handled I it. I feel pretty confident that I could do it, but <laughs> I am a mediocre white man. So <laughs> I got that sort of built in. Alabama, thank you so much for being so cool. Y'all are fantastic. A lot, of, a lot of great medical history right here in your home state. We got a lot more show for you. I want to thank the taxpayers for the use of their song medicine since the International Road Program. I want to thank the Alabama Theater. Beautiful. Uh, I want to thank Paul Saborin. Uh, and uh, we got a lot more show for you, so stick around. But until uh, the next time that we join you, my name is Justin McElroy. I'm Sydney McElroy. And as always, don't drill a hole in your head. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.